0: All right, good morning, everyone. I think we should get started. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to today's Region 4 COVID-19 Project ECHO session from the Emory University School of Medicine. This session is a collaboration with the Emory University Serious Communicable Diseases Program and the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. My name is Gavin Harris, and I will be the moderator for today. Before we begin, please know that we will be recording this session and your data, while used for informative purposes, will be kept confidential. For those unfamiliar, ECHO is an acronym for Extension for Community Healthcare Outcomes founded by the University of New Mexico. It's designed to disseminate and amplify best practices in a collaborative and interactive manner. And if you are interested in participating in future sessions, please submit cases to us. Details will be at the end and on our website. All sessions are recorded and published on the website too. So feel free to subscribe. Now this ECHO session is the third in a special mini series specifically focusing on important preparedness aspects of Ebola virus disease. And we will return to updated COVID-19 topics and bio-preparedness in general in the fall. Now, as always, if there are any issues during the webinar, please send us an email or type in the chat. If you would like to ask a question during the session, please type it into the Q&A feature. We will do our best to answer questions in real time and we'll discuss as many questions live as we are able. If we don't get to all questions in live discussion, we will post a recap addressing all the questions on our website when the recording to this session is available as a podcast next week. Now Emory's Project ECHO has been accredited for continuing education credits by the ACCME, the ACPE and the ANCC, and credits can be claimed following completion of this session by appropriate protocols. As per our compliance requirements, I would like to say that the planners and presenters of this session have no financial relationships to disclose. Now as a brief agenda for today, after this introduction and audience poll questions to set the stage, we will have a didactic presentation followed by moderated open discussion. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our expert panelists for today. First, I would like to introduce Josiah Mamora, a nurse clinician three here at Emory. He's also the lead nurse and training and education coordinator of Emory's Serious Communicable Diseases Unit, otherwise known as the SCDU, and was part of the original response team during our Ebola response in 2014. Next, we have Amanda Grindle, the Clinical Program Manager for Hospital Readiness at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, She's also the task lead for pediatrics, technical assistance, and metric development at NEETEC. And lastly, our didactic presenter will be Jill Morgan, a critical nurse here at Emory University Hospital, the in-person education lead for NETEC, also a member of Emory's SCDU and part of the original team during the Ebola response in 2014. Welcome to you all. And now before we jump in, I wanted to put forth some introductory poll questions just to get a sense of our comfort level with this topic. The first is, how knowledgeable do you feel about PPE required for Ebola virus disease? If you could please select one option on the scale shown above. All right, if we could share those results, please. All right, so we have a pretty decent spread with uh, the majority of people, two thirds at least, Uh, feel somewhat knowledgeable with the PPE required for Ebola virus disease and other special pathogens. So that's great. We have a lot of room that we can improve upon. All right, and now we're gonna try something new here. Uh, If you wouldn't mind clicking the link in the chat, which will be shared and on the screen, which will lead to another interactive question. Just give us a second. And the first one is what threats might you encounter in your clinic that you feel would require special uh, personal protective equipment? All right, so we have COVID-19 as one of them. Any other results we might see? Excellent, so we're of course very focused on a COVID-19, Ebola for sure. Any other special pathogens that we think of? All right, good, so we have definitely a variety here. Monkeypox, absolutely. All right, Canada auris for sure. We have a lot of emerging pathogens. TB, measles, I see. Great, so we're definitely in a position to attack a lot of these. Okay, let's move to the next question just in the interest of time. What additional resources do you need to prepare in case of encountering Ebola virus disease or other special pathogens in your clinic or some of the threats even that we just mentioned? And I'm sure a lot of these we've already encountered during this COVID-19 pandemic, the education of PPE, education, absolutely. Some feel that they're very prepared, which is excellent as well, staff, training, Excellent, all these that we're, we're going to address here. Fantastic. Well, it seems that this worked. Thank you all for your patience in using this new technology. It's the first time we've ever done this um, for one of these COVID uh, echo sessions, training, education and training. It seems that it's all in our mind, especially given what might be happening in the fall here too. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for being a part of this again. I think it's time now that we're gonna move to our brief interactive didactic to set the stage for our discussion. So with that, I'm going to turn it over joe morgan
1: thank you so much all right well we are going to get started and we're going to talk a little bit about uh ppe itself uh and specifically today about ebola and other viral hemorrhagic fevers all right so the goals of today are to understand how the chain of infection influences our ppe choices and that applies to any kind of pathogen we're going to explore the competing concerns for patient versus staff safety and we're gonna discuss PPE research that helps inform our practices. So first, let's just talk about what kinds of things cause viral hemorrhagic fevers. And you can see up here, we've got this chain of infection that we know that there's an infectious agent of some kind. It lives in a reservoir or host. It, makes, it wait. It's makes its way out of that reservoir or host, out of a portal of exit. That might be somebody's sputum or blood, organs, It has a mode of transmission that it travels, and then it enters the next person or place or thing as a portal of entry. And that depends on that being a susceptible host, a a suitable host for that organism and just keeps going with that chain. So in our hemorrhagic fevers, we actually have four virus families that can cause a wide variety of diseases. And not all of them are even diseases that we worry about in humans Um, so for instance um, yellow fever and dengue while those are things that we're concerned about they're not uh, strictly speaking um, the the kinds of things that we're worried about in this case so there are some other non-VHF but human diseases that are caused by these the portal of exit as we just mentioned is not always known we don't always know in the cases of some of these pathogens whether for instance, there uh, is enough of a pathogen in any of these body fluids, for instance, uh, whether you could cough or sneeze something out, whether it needs to be blood, whether you could get it from urine and stool. And sometimes we think of as being dependent on where the disease is in that person. For instance, we think about respiratory diseases as probably being in the things that we cough or sneeze out but there are respiratory pathogens that can stay intact and viable in things like urine and stool. So in many cases, we have to expand this list as we get more data. And that was certainly one of the benefits of us treating Ebola virus patients in the United States where we had access to safely test all kinds of body fluids um, that had not been able to be done in the middle of an outbreak in other places. And certainly, this is also true of Zika that we found out once we had more cases of Zika in resource rich environments, we were able to look and find out exactly where uh, Zika was positive in different body fluids. With our Ebola, there were several things we didn't know. For instance, Ebola being active in cerebrospinal fluid, and then, of course, famously also uh, in an intraocular space. When we think about that being only one half of the equation, we have the person on the left who's got a virus, a pathogen of some kind, and then we're making our way over to another human. How is it that those kinds of body fluid exposures occur? Well, that can be from a sharps injury, certainly things like uh, needle sticks, but also just things like unintact skin through our mucous membranes, and of course, less so for. Uh, the interactions that we're talking about in healthcare, but we know that some of these can also be sexually transmitted as well. So part of this equation is also what the dose is in order for a pathogen to move from one person to another. So all of you are familiar with the idea of contact precautions, for instance, trying to keep pathogens off of our clothing, off of our skin, but in some cases, it's not that we can get something through any piece of unintact skin. In other cases, there are things that the, low, the dose needed to transmit a disease is so very small that we're concerned about even microscopic breaks in people's skin. So it's important to understand both the transmission mode and what that dose, infectious dose, might be. So, personal protective equipment of any kind, all of these ensembles are designed to protect us from those potential exposures. So, knowing the mode of transmission is critical to protecting, to choosing the appropriate protection. When transmission modes are well established, you are, or not well established, we actually want to protect against all of them. And certainly, this came up during uh, COVID nineteen uh, with the idea of: is it really airborne? Is it just droplets? Do we need? Uh, respiratory protection versus a mask. But each of these I want you to think about as part of uh, putting together an ensemble that protects you against appropriate risk. So for instance, we think about contact precautions and most of us are used to things like yellow gowns, isolation gowns. But in the case of something like Ebola, where we have very, very small infectious doses, we need to prevent any contamination of our skin or clothing, and that's a higher level of contact precautions than, for instance, a conventional yellow gown would offer. We know that our eyes can serve as a portal for droplets and airborne pathogens, so we had full face shields. We had complete coverage of our eyes, our nose, and our mouths to prevent any microscopic droplets and to protect against airborne transmission. So each of these acts as a part of the puzzle to protect us fully against all of the different ways that you can transmit these pathogens. So we really think about this as knowing the purpose of the piece. What are you actually trying to protect yourself against? And thinking about not only the purpose of the piece, but how I'm going to take, put it on and take it off. So for instance, If I'm thinking about wanting to protect my clothing, I wanna think about, should it be a gown or a coverall? A coverall has the advantage of 365 degree coverage of our bodies. It means that we can move around in a workspace and feel protected from any angle, but they're cumbersome. They're difficult to put on. They're difficult to take off safely. If we choose a gown, what kind of gown? How much protection does that gown need to have? As we'll get into in just a minute, we know that Ebola patients and other patients with viral hemorrhagic fevers can be wet, what we call wet, which means they might be very sweating heavily from fever. They can have vomiting, they can have diarrhea. And those influences, those types of symptoms influence what kind of gown we want to choose. Our conventional isolation gowns are not always impervious to fluids. So we wanna think about whether we need a higher level gown in order to protect ourselves from those body fluids getting onto our clothing or our skin. When we think about a face shield or safety glasses, we wanna think about both the comfort and visibility, making sure that we're protecting our eyes from every direction, but that we're not compromising our ability to do our jobs. With PAPRs or N95s, Certainly, we've, many of us have gotten used to wearing N95s a lot more right now than we ever had before. But for prolonged use, many people find it in PAPR, powered air purifying respirator, to be much more comfortable. And it's important when we talk about gloves to understand that more is not always better. We think about double gloving in situations like this so that we always have a pair we can take off if they get soiled but we're never down to bare skin in a patient care environment. If you think about triple-gloving, there's no problem with that, except that it also then decreases the tactile sensation of trying to, for instance, find the end of a roll of tape or take off a Band-Aid. And you wanna make sure that staff are practiced in those ensembles, including the number of layers of gloves that they might be using. So all of these pieces make up a PPE ensemble that have to be able to work together. So it's important to know which order you're gonna take something off in. How does your gown affect the rest of your PPE? So gown levels, we have uh, level one through four are the AAMI levels of gowns for healthcare use. And they range from marginally protective against fluids to fluid impervious it's important to understand where those levels of protection are on each gown because they may just be in the critical zone. So that front and down the arms of the gown. And it may not have that same protection, for instance, on the back of the gown. So you wanna make sure your staff are aware of not leaning against something or compromising a part of their PPE. There's also a difference between a surgical and an isolation gown in the amount of coverage they offer. And making sure that staff are able to both don all these ensembles and then the safe doffing of what can be very complex ensembles, making sure that staff know which pieces must be removed first in what order so that they don't inadvertently contaminate themselves during the doffing process. So here's an example of those AAMI uh, levels of gowns. So first I wanna point out that the two different graphics here, the top red one that is just A's and B's and C's, an isolation gown has to have the same level of protection on the entire surface of that garment. So if you put the sides of it behind your back, you have the same protection all the way around. Surgical gowns, that's not true for. They have to have whatever their stated level of protection in what are called the critical zones. And you see those highlighted over the blue surgical gown in that pink red color. And that means that for instance, if somebody were to touch your shoulder, you may not have the same level of protection there as you would in the middle of your chest or down your forearm. So having your staff know these helps them act safely when they're wearing these pieces of PPE. A level one gown has is tested against impact penetration. This is with jetted artificial blood and water. Actually, level one is just tested with water resistance. Level two, again, impact penetration and hydrostatic pressure. Again, tested with jets of water. Same thing with a level three. They offer pretty moderate water protection. You see these, for instance, in the procedure gowns that many places use for sterile procedures. And then a level four gown is the highest level gown we have. This is tested in what's called the ASTM 1670-1671 test. And that's using synthetic blood and viral penetration. So viral sized particles that are jetted in the same way that water is. Making sure that things as small as viral particles can't be forced through the fabric under pressure. When is this important? It's especially important if you might be needing to hold on to a patient, hold on to a a febrile patient or somebody bleeding to hold pressure on something, or if a patient were to grab you with a sweating hand or something bloody, you want to make sure that uh, this, this level of protection is really saved for the times and the patients where that kind of event is likely and dangerous. So in, when we think about viral hemorrhagic patients, we think about two levels. We have PPE that's recommended for what we call a dry patient. That's a patient that might be able to toilet themselves. You may be going in and taking vital signs, doing an assessment, but you're not having to physically be in contact with that patient for long periods of time. In this case, it consists of a single use disposable face shield, disposable surgical mask, Fluid resistant gown that extends to mid cap or a coverall, and at least two pairs of gloves. We like them to have extended cuffs. In other words, we want to be able to cover the cuff of the surgical gown because we know that the cuff of a surgical gown does not have the same protection as the rest of the sleeve has. So the outer glove should have extended cuffs to cover the cuff of the gown. That also gives us protection for an awful lot of the things that we do as healthcare workers, where we might be using the base of our hand in order to steady things as we're performing procedures on patients. For wet PPE, a patient who is unable to toilet themselves might be having lots of diarrhea or vomiting, who we might have to help hold up to move around a room onto a bedside commode, or if it happens to be a child that we are having to hold. This is a higher level of protection. Again, starting with a single use face shield, but also having total skin coverage. So a surgical hood extending to the shoulders. In this case, we've moved from a surgical mask to an N95. We use a single use fluid resistant or impermeable gown that extends again to mid calf or a cover off. Two pair of gloves, again, outer pair of gloves should have extended cuffs to cover that knit cuff of a gown. And then we also want to have an apron that helps protect that PPE. And lastly, in the case of a wet patient, we want to make sure that our, our lower legs, calves and feet, shoe covers are all covered as well. And that means using fluid resistant or impermeable boot covers. You may be familiar with something like a bouffant hat and shoe covers from the operating room. And those were really designed to protect the operating room from our dirty feet or from hair that might fall off of our heads. But in this case, we're trying to protect the entire surface of our bodies from any of the pathogens that might be present in this room. So when does that happen? When does a patient move from wet to dry? Well, it can be difficult. Sometimes this is definitely a judgment call. Patients don't just say, "Hmm, I think in about an hour, I'm going to have a bout of uncontrollable diarrhea. Just doesn't happen. So we have to be prepared for the kind of situations and knowing what the clinical course of a disease will look like can really help us. And that's why it's much easier to care for even patients with something like Ebola than it can be with brand new pathogens because we may not have a good sense of what uh, the the course of a disease can look like, what all the stages might uh, be, and kind of getting to the point where we can anticipate the next steps. It's also important to understand that patients get better. And so sometimes we actually move backwards in PPE and say this patient doesn't need a wet ensemble anymore because they're now better and are able to toilet themselves, get up and move around the room safely. For us, it was definitely a judgment call, and it was important for the entire team to be on one page about it so that we agreed we're going to move from dry to wet because we think this patient's getting sicker and everybody was in agreement, and then we're going to move from wet and we're going to scale back our PPE once these patients are no longer a threat to us at that same level. So some other things to think about, and this is really, I think, um, some of the more subtle things that for instance, not knowing what the course of the disease would look like in a well-resourced environment, we didn't know whether we were gonna be able to leave these patients alone for any length of time. If you think about how long it takes to don some of these complex ensembles, you'll realize quickly that it's not possible to simply don your PPE and run into a room when a patient needs something, you have to be ready before they need it. So, in fact, we didn't leave our patients alone because we were concerned about that time delay. Because it's unsafe to enter a room without PPE, we had to retrain our staff because we know as healthcare professionals, we're used to putting a patient's needs first. We might run into a room without PPE if someone's about to fall, get up out of bed, and not be safe. Maybe they've Become disconnected from a piece of equipment or something's alarming. And frequently, healthcare providers will run into those spaces without appropriate PPE on. In the case of something as deadly as Ebola, we had to make sure that that wasn't going to happen. And that meant keeping people in PPE and training them to put their own safety first and foremost. We also tried to minimize the number of staff that were in a room in any day. So while that might mean longer hours for any one person in PPE, it meant a fewer number of people overall who were going to be exposed. And that helps us reduce doffing events, because we know as long as our PPE is intact, in that room, my skin, my mucous membranes are all protected. It's in the doffing that I might inadvertently contaminate myself and we want to reduce the total number of doffing events when possible. You also have to think about somebody being in that PPE for a period of time, That it's not enough to just train in your ensemble, put it on and take it off. How do people tolerate being in a PPE ensemble for an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours? And can they then doff that PPE safely? So balancing comfort and having total impervious coverage. So these very complex ensembles require extensive training in order to use them and remove them safely. And this is where we saw some really risky behavior because the temptation is to put on more PPE add layers, not always anticipating the difficulty that might add in a doffing procedure. But lastly, PPE and learning these things can be really empowering for your staff. When people feel like they have a certain level of competence in their own self-protection, it gives them the ability to really think critically about what PPE they're choosing, why they're choosing it, and knowing that they are able to use it and remove it safely.
0: Thanks. All right. Thank you so much, Jill, for that excellent presentation. You really brought up a lot of important points that we can certainly address, and, and I, I hope um, uh, you know we certainly do. And I just wanted to remind the audience as well, if you have any questions, please make sure to submit them via the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Before I get to some of our questions, there was one that actually came through, uh, which is, I just want to address to the group too, is are we expecting an imminent Ebola threat in the near future? And I would just like to address this by, by simply saying, we don't know, but I can tell you based on evidence that we've seen in the last several decades with, um, you know, several spillover events, of course, with SARS-CoV-1, with SARS-CoV-2, of course, with MERS, um, these threats will continue to arise. And, and since the, you know, large Ebola uh, pandemic in 2013 and 14, we've really had Ebola outbreaks every year since. And there was an Ebola outbreak that just ended in Guinea earlier this year as well. And as we've all seen too, with you know the news of, of someone flying on a plane and landing in Atlanta with monkeypox and then going to Dallas, these threats can really arise at any time, which is why we feel that the presentation, especially which you just gave Jill, with kind of like an all threats hazard risk assessment um, with regards to PPE is so timely and is so important. The first thing I wanted to do uh, now is actually turn to uh, Ms. Amanda Grindle, um, who mainly does work with pediatrics, but of course also does metrics and is a lead here at ETEC. And I just wanted to get your pediatric perspective on kind of some of the things that you think about from, uh, for children, especially with uh, COVID-19 and PPE and also um, with special pathogens like Jill's mentioned. How do we compare or how do we contrast kind of what you think about?
2: Yeah, thanks so much, Gavin, and thanks, Jill, um, as well. I think it's important to note Jill made an important uh, piece of information towards the end of her presentation about adding more is not always best. So when you think of pediatrics, you think, oh, your personal space is probably a little bit more compromised, meaning you're going to have to be closer to the patient a lot of times, doing things like feeding and holding, and your first inclination might be to add extra layers Um what I would caution you is that is it gets really hot for your staff if you do that. It also gets um, a little bit more dangerous every layer that you add, meaning, like uh, Jill said, to be able to take that off safely, there's implications there. So anything you can do to maybe put a barrier between you and the patient, maybe it's a blanket for the patient, or maybe um, something that we do, for instance, is wear just a simple dietary apron that can easily be doffed and a new one can put back on so you're not having to doff your whole ensemble really cuts down on your risk factor. And that's really what um, is most important. So always think about your staff safety first, but there are a little bit more implications of pediatrics in that personal space for sure.
0: Excellent, thank you. And uh, Jill, I wanted to, to also say, you highlighted something that I think is really crucial and important. Um, you had one slide up there, which talked about the dry versus the wet patient and how you know predicting the course of disease can be sometimes tricky and that patients can progress from a dry to a wet patient and then back again. And we have to really adapt um, you know, our measures accordingly. And uh, Josiah, I wanted to bring you into this discussion. Josiah is one of our uh, lead clinicians uh, at Emory at our series Communicable Diseases Unit. He's also the training and education uh, lead as well. Josiah, what does that mean in terms of how we train our providers and our staff with PPE and preparing for this kind of dry versus wet patient? What are some considerations that facilities, you know, from your standpoint, need to make?
3: So it's pretty much just being um, fully transparent with your staff um, as to the fact that things, the, the, the situation scenario can change. I think people can get caught off guard when um, uh, not everyone's on the same page. So what we did um, uh, with, with, with our team is uh, every morning would do what's called a, a, a morning huddle in which everyone on the team is updated all at the same time, questions are all answered PPE is, the PPE model is decided for everyone at that morning. And then if the scenario changes by the evening, everyone else, and everyone is again notified at that time.
0: Excellent. So, I mean, that brings up the whole idea of communication, how important communication, both horizontal and vertical uh, communication is. Um, Jill, maybe, maybe you could uh, speak about that a little bit more in terms of how we communicate through our PPE uh, what are some considerations we should think about when we communicate, say, with our pre-hospital services if they're bringing a patient, um, you know, in PPE versus not?
1: Right. It's really important when you to to know what your uh, EMS providers, what your sister facilities might be doing in terms of PPE if you're going to receive a patient. Uh, we think about being ready to receive this patient and so making sure that we can offer a safe environment for that EMS or that transfer to come through, and then what how we're gonna doff those people. Where will their PPE go when they take it off? Uh, how are we gonna receive this patient? How will the patient be packaged? Um, many of you probably saw when we got our patients that famous helicopter coverage. A patient came to us in a coverall. Well, that sounds great. They're holding all this stuff in, but that was one wet package, right? So when you have staff members who are then having to to get a patient out of a coverall, um, that has its own set of risks. So getting to know that entire uh, method of communication, who's going to be finding that information out, what we do with that information is really important. And I think that uh, I want to make sure that we get across the message that this was a decision that came from the bedside, was agreed to by the entire care team. This was not imposed by IP. This was not imposed by our providers. This was something that the entire team of equals were delivering this care participated in. And I think that was tremendously important for our team's success was this sort of um, not having a hierarchy, as you said, Gavin, having really um, communication that went evenly across uh, the entire team. And everybody had to have buy-in to that. Uh, and that's just a, a huge piece of our success.
0: Yeah, I, I think you know, what we've learned, especially in this last year, and even in the development of critical care in general, is that it's such an interdisciplinary um, scenario. That we need every every uh, you know all hands on deck so to speak and that everyone really should be treated as equals from the nursing staff to our ancillary staff to our physicians and uh, uh you know all our clinician teams um kind of similarly josiah one of the questions has come through in terms of what did emory specifically learn in terms of how to communicate through ppe so in terms of you know radio communication or how to communicate from inside to outside the unit were there some issues in how we communicated with the emergency medical services who may have been wearing a different style of PPE or type of PPE. Perhaps you could speak on that a little bit.
3: Yeah, so uh, we learned very quick on how to write on whiteboards and write backwards on windows. (laughs) 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 Pretty much analog uh, communication was the best way to go. Um, But for, just like what I said earlier, uh, transparency in the process and communicating through all the different answer staffs and staff members and physicians and nurses, I think preparation of what it is you're trying to do is the reason why we had a lot of success. Um, now, communication through PPE in general is gonna be very difficult because it's very hard to hear when you have a papper buzzing on the top of your head. Um, and then depending on the model of PAPR you have, it might be uh, a lot of uh, muffling of the sounds so a lot, of, a lot of loud voices and just knowing the volume of your voice and the way you're communicating to your patient as well so that it doesn't sound like you're yelling at your patient uh, <laughs> is very important. And just knowing, you know, just having everyone being familiar with the PPE, I think is very important so that everyone does know before they actually meet a patient what the limitations are. Mm-hmm.
1: And Gavin, if uh, I can, can, I just wanted to say this is a good time for everyone to practice that really important closed-loop communication that we might do naturally in things like code situations, but you want to employ that. When you have two people in N95s and face shields or PAPRs, you want to make sure you're making eye contact with who you're talking to. You want to make sure that you're closing that loop and saying, what I heard you say is, or what I'm going to give this patient is, so that you're repeating that and making sure that we're, we're closing that entire loop and that everything is accurate. Because again, patient safety is still our paramount concern. We wanna make sure that medication errors, treatment errors don't occur. Uh, so for us, it was a lot of, uh, as Josiah said, really projecting your voice, making sure that you had a good communication style with the people that might be in the room at the time, or using things like whiteboards to communicate with the
0: folks outside them. Excellent points from you both. Thank you so much. Um, Amanda, I just wanted to take a step back for kind of a second and, and maybe look at this through a little bit of a broader system level lens, almost from a you know from the knee tech kind of perspective in a sense, because during COVID, we know that we've had PPE issues and, and supply chain issues. And I just wanted to get a sense, what should facilities and systems kind of keep in mind, even from a metric standpoint going forward? Uh, in case there are new supply issues? How should we kind of think about managing them? And would some of these things perhaps even filter down to the individual um, unit levels? It's kind of a loaded question.
2: (laughs) Um, Sure, and then I'll let um, Jill speak as well because I know she's had a little bit of experience with this, but I think it's um, key on a couple aspects. One is really being um, in contact with that vendor that you're getting that supplies from and manufacturer. Um, knowing what supplies that is that's coming in. Um, If it is, for instance, a substitution that you're familiar with what that substitution is. Um, I think most importantly, it's listening to your staff. If you're getting, for instance, a new um, face shield or a new mask that's coming in and the staff is like, this is not fitting like it was before, or this, for some reason it's not coming off as easy. You know, those are risks right there and um, they need to be dealt with um, on a really uh, kind of immediate basis. There as well, and just kind of working on sourcing, for instance, right now um, or before the next big thing. Um, Although we're not finished with this one, but really knowing where things are going to come from, if you have to go to your second choice and third choice, Um, I think it's really important. As it's really been highlighted with the SARS CoV two, is things are things are going to happen that are unanticipated. So the more kind of uh, layers we can put into it, the more relationships we can build up front, I think will really help um the long-term uh effects there but really really listening to your staff being in tune on what that front line is really dealing with instead of just getting supplies in and we have gowns but well if those gowns don't protect you or keep um your staff safe or keep the patient safe then uh there's really no point in having those gowns so i'll let jill chime in if she'd
1: like well amanda knows that ppe is something near and dear to my heart these days so I think we have a couple issues, Gavin, that are really serious for facilities. And the first is that many kinds of PPE were uh, released to US healthcare systems as part of an emergency use authorization or EUA. And a lot of those um, have now expired. And that doesn't mean the piece of equipment's expired, but the permission to use it in this uh, sort of uh, type of use has expired. And so people need to look at what's in their stock, uh, what's in their perhaps offsite storage, what did they procure during the pandemic that they may not now be able to use. Um, And so it's really important that people be uh, involved their entire supply chain in these decisions. As Amanda said, if what you have demonstrated you need at the bedside, for instance, is a certain layer of protection, Uh, then how is the best means of providing that? Like if I need something impervious, am I better off with um, an inexpensive plastic apron that I can source from our kitchen or environmental services over a conventional gown that might not offer that much protection? Because we want to, again, think about what we're trying to do with the piece and then getting something that suits the needs of the staff members who will be wearing it. But knowing your supply chain, knowing your uh, the, the agents who are purchasing these things and making sure that they know what your highest priorities are is really important. And then I would love to empower healthcare workers. Figure out, know for yourself, what are the layers, what are the um, levels of masks? What are the levels of gowns? Do I know what I'm using now? Do I know what it's good for? Uh, and that's something that I think a lot of us, over the years, just assumed somebody else sort of is in charge of. And it's important as healthcare providers that we know what we're using and what it's for.
0: Those are all excellent points, Jill. Thank you. And you know, along those lines, Josiah, as as our you know training lead here at the SCDU, um, in terms of when we get new equipment in, when we Start to shift, uh, you know, to changes and models and things. How important, number one, is it for you as someone who trains the providers and the nurses uh, to know the equipment itself? And then, number two, how often are we training, you know, our providers, our clinicians, our ancillary staff? And, and what what's so important, or what are the priorities for you as a trainer in doing that?
3: So, the priorities of me as a trainer to train my staff is pretty much getting staff members exposed to the PPE as many times as possible. Um, especially initially, so the initial training process is usually about a four-hour intensive, kind of just donning, doffing, repeated, uh, repetitive uh, uh, process. And you know, some some people catch on early, some people catch on a little later. So again, the learning curve for PPE is different for everybody. Um, for the process itself, you got to make sure that the training and the donning, doffing pro- the training of the donning, doffing process is simple. So your protocols for donning and must be as simple as possible, which ties into, you know, adding multiple layers and everything else. Um, it doesn't necessarily help or benefit the user at the end. So having a simplified donning docking process allows the training to kind of learn the process quicker. Also simplifying, uh, making sure that your um, PPE pieces are interchangeable with multiple different manufacturers because one you might be tied to a certain manufacturer of uh, a, a piece of equipment or a piece of PPE, and then you know they got a business or they're out of short supply. Mm-hmm. You need to have the flexibility in your process to where you can replace those pieces easily.
0: Yeah, the flexibility that you raise is so important. I mean, we saw this with COVID, of course, absolutely. And Amanda, you also mentioned this too, is to really be in touch with the um, you know the suppliers of all our PPE. And, and it sounds like from all three of you, really, the time to do that is now. It's not to do that, you know, uh, in the future when all of a sudden we realize that there's things in our stockpile that are expired or something like that. Um, Josiah, how important is it from your standpoint for someone p- uh, putting on PPE for, you know, an observer, for a buddy system? Have you found that to be successful? Did we find that to be important, uh, you know, during 2014?
3: yeah, the buddy system is key, you know, um, you know, two heads are better than one kind of thing. Um, also four eyes are better than uh, just two. And with the two eyes that you have, when you're, when you're in PPE, full PPE, especially paper level PPE, where your vision is already limited. Um, someone directly watching your back is very important. Um, it, it also goes to the color of PPE you actually have, um, you know, there's some shades of blue, white and everything else, you know, like we, we find that white PPE, at least for um, the bigger parts of your uh, PPE, like your, your, uh, your body, your legs, arms, easily visible. Uh, it's easy to see uh, bodily fluids on that. Um, we've also changed colors on our gloves, inner and outer, uh, so that if there's a tear in the glove, it's easily observable from, you know, your, your buddy.
0: Great points, um, and you know, as a provider myself, even during COVID, I've found that you know, months in, I can still make mistakes, and having really that second pair of eyes or that fourth pair of eyes, like you're talking about, can really make all the difference. Um, one of the questions that has come through, Josiah. You know, you had talked about this initial four-hour course that that you give to providers and nurses and all uh, other care personnel going through PPE. Are there any specific resources that you could perhaps point our audience to that might be beneficial? For uh, facilities that are out there and, you know, if there are resources that we might be able to post perhaps after this session uh, as well.
3: Uh, Neat Tech um, is a very good uh, resource for all things PPE. Um, With that being said, uh, knowing the uh, manufacturer's kind of own resource to, you know, like the the manufacturer of your PPE, if they have videos online, um, usually they post videos on YouTube or things like that as to how to on their PPE or what their PPE is supposed to look like, just so that you have a baseline of where you're uh, starting from. Also, the the National uh, Special Pathogens, um, uh, I I don't remember the full name, but uh, they they have resources as well. There's a lot of public resources. Again, it's important to note that you have to use those resources as a baseline and then make it fit your particular situation, your unit, and, and your staff, because one kind of a one size fits all model does, doesn't necessarily work everywhere.
0: Absolutely, okay. and, and oh, I'm sorry. Go on, please,
3: Joe. That's Go okay,
1: Gavin. I was just to build on that. What Josiah just said is that a lot of people would like to have a single answer for what would work for them, but we have to deal with the reality of our physical environment in addition to the our staff. So, for instance, do you have? Rooms with doors that shut, or are you in a clinic situation where you have an open, an uh, uh, open uh, room? Do you have anti-rooms? Do you have negative pressure? Do you have room to make a doffing area or a donning area right outside your patient room? So while it sounds like oh, what it should be easy to make this protocol, the as Josiah said, the protocol has to be adapted to your physical environment to make sure that people can do uh, that. Uh, protocol safely in that space. And then you have things like people's physical abilities. Um, You know, if you're putting people in a coverall, are they able to stand on one foot while they put it on or take it off? Um, Can they reach and get the pieces off that they need to? Uh, And we certainly are concerned about muscle memory. And that's a big deal that has come up for a lot of us during COVID is, are we sure that people are developing good PPE habits. When Josiah talks about the importance of repeated donning and doffing, he's talking about building muscle memory in a way that we know is safe. And if you let people build muscle memory in bad ways, then they're just gonna repeat taking their respirator off incorrectly, or taking their face shield off and not doing something with it. So we want to make sure that we're implementing processes that can be repeated safely every time someone uses that article of PPE.
0: Excellent points. And um, Amanda, from a pediatric standpoint, you know, because as, as we're all aware that um, children and newborns and even, um, you know, uh, toddlers and things like that can present in very different ways than can, you know, adult patients. What does this mean in terms of preparation and, and training um, from your standpoint?
2: Yeah, so it complicates a little thing <laughs> for, uh, for starters, but I think really that travel screen, that initial identify, isolate, form, which should be done in the adult world as, w- as well, is very, very important. Uh, Where you're getting in your information uh, is a little bit different, meaning you're gonna have to probably get it from a parent if the child is young. Um, So thinking about that parent that comes with that child. So if you're talking about something like Ebola or a viral hemorrhagic fever, the PPE need and exposure is very different. So your institution really wants to think ahead of time about visitation, um, about allowing those parents or guardians, are you going to allow them in the room? If you're not, you know, how are you going to kind of interact and get that information? Um, so there are a few uh, differences for sure. Visitation is a big one. I would um, urge institutions to create plans ahead of time so you're not having to backtrack or um, you're exposing people inadvertently, or then now you have two patients and it's an adult and a child or more um, there as well. So definitely having those conversations um, ahead of time uh, is, a, is a good start.
0: Excellent points. And I would imagine, you know, from a, a pediatric side, right? To see someone come up in full, um, you know, personal protective yeah. equipment with a paper, and you can only see their eyes can be extremely traumatizing for a young child. So I'm sure those considerations, um, you know, are definitely important. I mean, we, we saw that for adult patients, um, yeah.
2: Um, something just to think about is, yeah, with pediatrics, really what they're seeing is really going to delineate how helpful or not helpful they're going to be for you. Or if you're going to need a parent in the room or not, or maybe if you're going to need two or three caregivers versus one caregiver in the room. So really um, thinking about the patient and what you look like. uh, An important thing that uh, we've instituted at Children's is um, having a book with what the care provider looks like with their PPE not on. So you can see their face you see their name, you can tell them. You know, we have a couple favorite things, you know, in kids. It's what's your favorite color? And, you know, like under mine, it be listed red, for instance. Something just to relate to the um, child and just let them know, you know, that it is you and you're there to help. And they're a lot more apt um, in the drills that we've done to really respond to that versus someone just walking in um, and looking very unfamiliar with them, especially if you're not going to allow a parent or caregiver or visitor in the room. It's really the nurses takes on a whole new role of you're now the caregiver, the provider, the parent, the teacher, all that kind of thing.
0: Right. I mean, as you point out with with children, right, that first initial visit, perhaps even more so than adults, that first interaction can really make or break the entire treatment course, the entire trust that a child will place in a provider. Yeah, excellent points. Um, We're getting a little bit short on time, but I just wanted to say as well, too, um, some of the resources that all three Uh, of our panelists have mentioned, we will be posting on our webpage next week. Um, They are also been posted in the chat with the NETEC PPE Tools and Resources and National Special Pathogens and Education Training Center uh, website as well. Now, there have been several questions that have come through with regards to vaccination. And I will just start by saying that there are several Ebola vaccines that are uh, being investigated and several have been licensed as, as well. Uh, Two are licensed in Russia and China. Those are adenovirus vector vaccines, very similar to the COVID-19 vaccines produced by AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. And then there is also a live attenuated vaccine that is licensed here in the United States, um, of which, yes, several, several, I guess the list is growing, um, of Emory uh, personnel who have been vaccinated for this. And, And one of the questions was that, do we think vaccination will change how we look at PPE in terms of our special pathogens. So I just wanted to get a, a sense from our panelists in terms of, would this matter uh, in, prep, in preparing for a viral hemorrhagic fever? Josiah, from your standpoint, would this matter?
3: It, it does matter in the, in, in the ability for, um, and confidence of the provider to provide care. I think having a plan B is always great. And I think vaccines um, in, in a sense is always gonna be plan B. Plan A will always be PPE. Understanding your PPE, because when you make that initial patient contact or when you get a patient, you you're you're you're, you're coming in blind, right? Um, until you kind of have a full assessment of what of what's going on. And um, just like COVID nineteen, you know, if we had, I I, I personally believe if we, we had a, a more robust PPE and robust kind of uh, isolation procedures and everything else, uh, we would be dealing with a lot less uh, of the issues that we're currently dealing with now. And, you know, again, the vaccine ultimately was was plan B for COVID-19. Great,
0: great points. Jill, your thoughts. Would uh, a provider who is vaccinated say for Ebola, would this matter in terms of how we approach PPE?
1: Yeah, I, I agree completely with Josiah here. I think that the way he put it that, that uh, PPE is always gonna be your first line. And and really, if you think about this, and I'm sure we have some IPs watching this, right? PPE is our last line of defense after a lot of engineering controls and administrative controls. Those type things help protect the entire environment and therefore the staff as well. But between me and a patient with Ebola or any pathogen, what I have there is my PPE. I want good airflow, I want good filtration, I want all those other things in place but it comes down to me and PPE. Now, if I'm not a susceptible host to that pathogen because I'm vaccinated, that's a plus, but it's not a substitute for PPE. And it's a perfect time to say, same is true with COVID. If you're vaccinated against COVID, that does not mean you want to be breathing in other people's exhaled air, whether you're in an elevator or a, a, a grocery store whether you're in a classroom or a stairwell, if you are where you can breathe in someone else's air, you need to have on your PPE. And for us, that's as simple as a mask right now. So it's a it's huge and it's important. And we just want it, we want everybody to protect themselves.
0: Well said, Jill. Amanda, your thoughts. Would vaccination change how you look at PPE? I,
2: I will echo what the other two said. I think for um, the purpose of it's just another risk mitigation strategy, right, it's another layer of protection. Um, You've heard about the Swiss cheese model where you hope if there's an issue, the holes don't line up, well, vaccination would allow for those holes to be farther apart um, so that they don't line up. So I think absolutely well said by both of them, PPE will always be there, it should always be there. And then obviously if you have the chance to get vaccinated with whatever special passage in those Ebola, COVID-19, you should do that as well uh, to protect yourself and the patient.
0: Well said by all of you. Thank you. I think I, um, we're going to close the discussion, but I just want to leave with one last question. I'm going to d- direct this to Jill. You know, a lot of the knee Tech sessions that have been done around the country have been so well received. And one of the questions from uh, our attendees today has been that, do you anticipate knee Tech will be offering in-person education training at Emory or other sites such as Bellevue or Nebraska for PPE again in the future?
1: Yes, if I have anything to say about it, the answers, definitely yes. Uh, we know how important in-person education is. We know how important it is for PPE to do it hands-on. So uh, I think once travel restrictions are eased a little bit and we get a little further away from this next uh, rising crest of COVID, uh, we hope to be doing in-person education in our next fiscal year.
0: Thank you so much. That will end our discussion. Basically, we need to be prepared and we need to start to continue to train. We've had incredible presentations. Thank you so much to our expert panelists and to the audience for participating. Now, before we do close officially, I would again just like to pose an interactive question to the audience after participating in this session. And that is again, having now um, attended, how knowledgeable do you feel about the PPE required for Ebola virus disease and other special pathogens of this level, if you could please vote uh, with the same scale as before. All right, if we could throw up the results of that on the screen, please. And it looks like we've had an excellent improvement. Um, We now have the majority of our attendees feel more than somewhat knowledgeable about, um, you know, the PPE that's required for pathogens of this level. So thank you all very much. Again, we will be posting the recording to this session and also to the resources mentioned today on our website. Thank you again for everyone. Now for feedback and further information, including the recording, please check the links here and on our website. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you very much.